This is the scripture for today's message from Matthew 26, verses 26 to 29. Now, as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Well, good morning. My name is Andrew Sharp. I'm an elder here at the barn. And from time to time, it's my great privilege to be able to preach. And this morning is one of those Sundays. And it's a communion Sunday. And the topic of this sermon is, appropriately, communion. And in different Christian traditions, it's known as the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. Never the Lord's Dinner. I've, I've never seen that. I've always wondered why, because it, I don't know. But, and it is a, it's a sacrament, which is a sacred Christian rite or ritual understood to impart divine grace. Uh, at the first service, I had a very inclusive list of sacraments, and I, it was pointed out to me that the EPC recognizes two. <laughs> Communion and baptism. Marriage, sacramental, not a sacrament. So these are things that I learned between services. In preparation for this topic, um, I read portions of Remembrance, Communion, and Hope by J. Todd Billings, which was a book that uh, Matt lent to me. And I had already been reading uh, Surprised by Hope by N.T. Wright. So those two books largely coalesced to kind of broaden my understanding of, of communion. And as I contemplated what... I would say about communion, because it's so familiar for most of us, um, what, what might be useful. You know, I realized that it is a very vast topic. And the history of communion down through the ages um, is very colorful, to say the least. And different churches at different times have had sort of different ways of understanding what is happening during communion. For example, does the bread and wine literally become the body and blood of Christ? And if it does, does it therefore have supernatural powers or properties? In the Middle Ages, some Christians would save their communion bread and plant it in the ground in the hope of an abundant crop. Um, other people would feed their communion bread to livestock that were sick 
Um, some churches through history and some today just serve the bread and the celebrant uh, partakes of the wine and no one else. There are churches that, can, uh, that serve communion every week, some every day, and others once a year. And the theology behind those various practices is, is very complex, and I'm not going to try to take that on in this sermon so, so you can breathe a sigh of relief, because um, that might take a while. But today is Communion Sunday here at the barn. We celebrate it on the first Sunday of every month. And, I mean, what do we think about when we walk into church and realize it's a Communion Sunday? Have we prepared for it in some way? Um, or are we surprised sometimes when it's Communion Sunday and we walk in and like, oh, that's right, May 2nd. That came upon us quickly. And is, is the first thought or the second thought, yeah, the service is probably going to run longer. <laughs> or the sermon might be shorter. Do you expect to feel different when you're receiving communion or at some point after that? And what do we think is happening when we are partaking of the bread and the juice? I mean, those are all really important questions, and, and we need to reflect on that. Um, one striking aspect about communion is that it's both um, very personal and, and, and deeply sort of individual. We're drawn into covenantal uh, fellowship with Christ, but it's also necessarily a communal act. We're sharing the experience, the sacrament, with others, and through that we have fellowship in Christ, not just with Christ. So what then is our mindset when we come to the table, or what should it be, or what things might we be considering? Um, I'm going to talk about five ways that we might think about uh, the sacrament of communion. First, probably not surprisingly, is we remember. Jesus told his disciples, do this in remembrance of me. And you might think it's strange to be told to remember. I mean, how could we forget about Jesus? There's a huge cross hovering over this room. You know, there, there are images, you know, things everywhere that would remind us of Jesus. But think of it this way. Without remembering, as Christians, we have no story to tell, and we have no mission. There's a Greek word that it's sometimes it's used in a theological context. It's anamnesis, which is the deliberate remembering and retelling of some event. And in the Christian context, we remember the sacrifice and suffering of Christ on behalf of humankind. And we understand, do this in remembrance of me as a command of Jesus. Second, there's proclamation. 
We proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. In receiving communion, Christians are proclaiming their faith. And for that reason, we at the barn and and in many other churches urge people who have not accepted Christ as Savior not to receive the elements because they'd be proclaiming something they don't believe in. Something pretty profound and important. Third, and I, I mentioned this earlier, is the idea of fellowship. We are experiencing communion with God, to be sure, and we are also experience, experiencing fellowship with other believers. And I think a lot of times we, we don't think about that aspect too much, but it is a pretty, you know, pretty profound thing to think that we are sharing a sacrament with Christians around the world, that there's a universality to what we'll be doing this morning together. Fourth is the idea of self-examination. We consider our hearts. Have we loved other idols? At the Last Supper, Jesus said, one of you will betray me. Not one of you has betrayed me, but one of you will. And you could imagine the awkward silence that followed that bombshell at the table and disciples probably in sort of hushed conversations with each other or just thinking to themselves, does he mean me? In the same way we examine our own hearts, And we confess as we need to confess. Fifth, and this is the one that I'm going to focus on for the balance of this sermon. We look ahead with hope and expectation to a place at the wedding banquet where Christ will be joined to his bride, the church. We often refer to it as a foretaste of the wedding banquet. The early church broke bread and poured the cup not simply to enact a memorial meal, but primarily to anticipate the great messianic banquet that was to come and is to come. They believe deeply, and we should also, hopefully, that God continues to move humankind forward in the ongoing establishment of a kingdom that is not made by human hands. In this kingdom, which is still coming and is already here, and we'll talk about that in a moment, there will be a great banqueting table where all humankind will gather in solidarity and salvation. And at this table, there will truly be, as Paul wrote in Galatians, no longer Jew or Greek, no longer slave or free, no longer male or female. That's where I said, no, we're not going to be androgynous. It just means the social inequities will be non-existent. For all are one in Christ. And the image of the wedding feast and the church as the bride of Christ is particularly poignant for me these days. Um, And actually, in some traditions, the Song of Solomon, or Song of Songs, is featured prominently in celebration, celebrations of the Lord's Supper. And I love the image 
especially now. Last month, our son Griffin married his love, Jennifer, in a wedding that was glorious and celebratory and deeply spiritual in all the ways you'd hope a wedding would be. Um, And shortly prior to the service, there was a, a scheduled time when Griffin, for the first time, would get to see Jennifer in her wedding dress. And they were outside in a field of wildflowers, and there weren't a lot of people around, but Mary was there, and she had her camera. And you could see that Griffin's breath was just taken away. And he gazed upon his bride, and all he could say was, I get to marry you. I know that the image of being the bride of Christ can be a challenging thing for, for men. Um, but try to imagine looking upon Christ in wonder and in awe and in love at that moment the sacrament of communion points us to that moment. As Christians, our hope lies in the resurrection. It's not merely life after death, although it is that. Jewish tradition in Jesus' day was that there was indeed life after death, that the souls of the righteous would be with God after death. Resurrection was strongly linked to the restoration of Israel. You might remember the disciples asking the risen Jesus, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And for Jesus and the early church, it was a different understanding. Resurrection meant the renewal of humankind. Jews did not expect their Messiah to die. And they certainly didn't expect him to need to be resurrected. Thus the disciples would not have expected that either. And it would have been extremely unlikely for them to concoct some made-up story about Jesus' resurrection. I mean, an empty tomb alone can be explained away. Maybe the women who went there on Easter morning got the got it wrong. They went to the wrong tomb. Or maybe someone had moved the body. You know, an empty tomb in and of itself is a pretty thin reed upon which to rest a radical new understanding of who the Messiah is and what he was to accomplish. However, the hundreds of witnesses who encountered the risen Jesus meant something real and profound and unexpected had happened on Easter morning. If, if Jesus had just died and his soul had like floated away to heaven, could we really say he had defeated death? I mean, at best we could say maybe he got past it. But he defeated it so that we have defeated it. And what does that mean for us? I mean, I wonder how many Christians believe that Jesus died so that we might go to heaven in some disembodied form 
and melt away into the vast spirit of whoever or whatever God is. Comic book depictions of heaven always show angels playing harps or singing, sitting on clouds for eternity. I mean, does anyone else find that prospect horrifying? I mean, I could, maybe for an afternoon I could do that. But, well, Jesus' resurrection means that we, we will have bodily resurrection when heaven descends and the earth is renewed in a way that we cannot presently grasp. The Gospels do give us some important hints. Jesus taught us to pray, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, on earth as it is in heaven. Jesus does not mean that God will pluck his church from the worn out, sin-destroyed husk of a earth and spirit us away to some better reality. The early church very, very clearly expected that we would enjoy bodily resurrection in a glorious and restored earth. And not just a restored earth, but the heavens and the earth would be made new. And that is, that is really hard to wrap our minds around. I mean, it's hard for me to imagine making the heavens into something else. The book of Revelation gives us a glimpse when John writes, They will hunger no more and thirst no more, and the sun will not strike them, nor any scorching heat, for the Lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd, and he will guide them to springs of the water of life, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. During his incarnation, Jesus repeatedly stressed that the kingdom of God was at hand, that it was happening then and there, and is happening now. And we, of course, struggle with that. Because, you know, we look around, we see a world that's fraught with greed and poverty and sadness and war and injustice. And it doesn't feel like we're living in the kingdom of God. And, indeed, things are not as they should be and not as they will be. But Jesus modeled for us what we can expect when the heavens and earth are renewed. Disease is healed. Limitations are overcome. People are fed. We will walk in intimate communion with God. Justice will be restored. You may remember that John the Baptist, when he was in prison, asked whether Jesus was the Messiah or if he he and his followers should wait for another. And Jesus answered this way, The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. During his earthly ministry, Jesus was modeling for us a renewed life that we ourselves will enjoy. Our hope then, when we celebrate communion, is not merely that we're going to 
survive death and continue on in some vapor state of disembodied bliss. We will experience an earth that God declared as good. And we ourselves, individually and collectively, will embody the humanity that God declared as good. And as Christians, we are stewards of of a deep and mysterious hope. We don't know what a restored earth will look like. We do know we'll have bodies because the risen Jesus had a body. But can we imagine what a renewed earth would be like? I mean, I have to believe it's going to be vastly larger to accommodate all the people who have died throughout history. How will we communicate? What work will we have to do? What will our new bodies look like? Will I be able to find clothes in regular stores? These are all questions I ask. I cannot begin to answer those questions, except to think that each of us somehow will be more fully ourselves. I mentioned mission at the beginning of this sermon, um, and I am by no means saying that as Christians we can turn away from a world that we cannot redeem for our, by ourselves and just wait for Christ to usher in a better era. We live in the, in the push-pull tension of the already, but not yet. We have work to do now. Remember last week's sermon text, we are to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God. We, we have work to do right now. And we have very good news to tell. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are so many thoughts and images that come to mind when we approach your table. Help us to examine ourselves, to proclaim our faith, to celebrate fellowship with you and with your church. But help us to exult in the incredible hope that you have given us through Jesus. Even if we cannot fully grasp it, we're so grateful. In Jesus' name, amen.